following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Turn to Mark chapter 13, please. Mark chapter 13, if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you, that is page number 849. Thank you all for being in the spit pit here, front and center. Keep an eye on you. We're going to read all of chapter 13 this morning. It's one section, and we're only going to cover three verses of it today, but we're going to read it all each week um, because I think it will help us, at least over the next few weeks, particularly as we're studying the section, to, to have the full context, the full idea in mind week to week, just keep rehearsing the thoughts uh, to ourselves, get more and more familiar with the passage, because as we work through it, I think that will be a benefit to us. So I hope you have your Bibles open. I hope you don't just rely on the screen behind me here. If you don't have a Bible, please look at the screen. But if you do, look down, please, at verse 1, and we'll read the chapter. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of w- rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days... There will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken 
and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we are embarking now on a new section here in Mark, a continuation really of the ideas we have seen so far in chapters 11 and 12, but this one, it feels different, it looks a little different, and I pray at the outset for humility, for your spirit to give understanding, to enlighten us, to Help us to see these words as you have intended them, Lord. I pray that you will help us to not cling to things necessarily that we have been taught in the past if those things are wrong, but rather to be willing always to change, to bring our own thoughts, beliefs, practices, our whole lives in line with you and with your word, no matter where that takes us. And so we, we come now and we ask that your spirit help us this morning to understand as we begin to walk into this section May our hearts be that of ones to give glory to you in all these things, to not lose sight of you in this process, but to want to see you, know you, and love you more as a result of your word this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On Thursday, before stopping at the hospital to see Seth and Bethany and little baby Adelaide, um, Jamie and I made a quick trip over to Costco to pick up a few items, and since it was lunchtime, we decided just to go ahead and eat lunch there. The food's pretty good, and it's cheap, right? If you like Costco anyway, that's what you would think. But we went there, and we decided to eat real quick, and as we were walking up to the food area, we noticed a table open, which is unusual. And so I decided to go sit at the table and hold the spot while Jamie went and ordered our food. And so there I am sitting at the table, and next, at the table next to me, there are these two older men. I would assume they were in their 70s, one probably in their early 70s, one probably in their later 70s. And I begin, began to listen to their conversation. Um, they were talking about Israel, and they were talking, I think, about how America has treated Israel, at least in their minds, over the last few years. They were talking about sermons they had heard. They were talking about the return of Jesus. And I know I heard them talk about the wrath of God that would come on those, and I think this is in line with what they said, that we're not on Israel's side. And they talked about a lot of other things as well, and I couldn't hear everything that was being said because it was kind of loud in there, and they were talking somewhat quietly, but I could hear those little snippets and bits along the way. But, but the general tenor of their conversation was regarding the, the end times. And as I was listening to all of this, at least the bits and pieces that I could hear, I was on the one hand 
reminded why for the past several months now I have dreaded coming into Mark chapter 13. And on the other hand, I was reminded of why it is so important that we do so. I've dreaded this section for months now for two main reasons. First, it seems to me that whenever you bring up the topic of the end times in any way, shape, or form, you instantly bring along with you more baggage that you have to sort through than you do with any other topic or subject in the scriptures. Now, you may disagree with me on that. You may think that there is some other biblical or theological topic that carries more baggage with it than this one does. I'm not normally much of an arguing kind of guy, but I would probably argue with you over that point because I don't think it's true. Um, I get that there are other biblical and theological topics that people disagree over even strongly. I've got a few of them myself, and we, wanna, we can argue later if you want on a few of them. But, but the reality is, is that there just isn't as much diversity of disagreement on any other subject as there is on this one. Just as an example, and not to open a can of worm, worms necessarily, but, but the big one that everyone first thinks about when they think of big disagreements that people get really worked up about in the church is Calvinism and Arminianism, right? You, you bring that up, and boy, you've got fighting words now. People will go, you know, they're going toe-to-toe on that one. But understand that on that subject, you've got two positions, <laughs> It's either this or that. I get that there's, there's variations and outworkings of some of that, but, but it's really only two things. When you start talking about the end times, I counted this week, you have 666 different positions. <laughs> Whoa, I just figured something out, right? Uh, now, okay, maybe not that many exactly, but, but my point is there's a whole lot more than two, right? There's, there's tons of different positions and, and things that people think, and, and so there's all this disagreement, and much of this disagreement and much of, the, of the, the variations of ideas that are out there is fueled by a terrible marriage of bad exegesis, or if you don't know what that means, bad theology with populist preaching. In other words, if, if you take bad theology and, and you marry it to, to someone who wants to make a name for themselves out of being sensational and drawing people's attention to it, what you have left is a recipe for disaster for our understanding of this subject. And I recognize that as we begin to look at this topic, this is the diet that many of you have fed on the majority of your lives. I've fed on it too, with whether or not we've even realized it. And because it has been the majority of what has been presented to us, we probably have all responded in one of three ways. Either A, you have accepted what you've been taught your whole life, lock, stock, and barrel, without any critical thought or examination of the scriptures, and you may hold a very, very strong opinion on this subject, which in reality you cannot defend or, B, you have accepted what you have been told your whole life, but you don't really know why. And you don't hold it super strongly, and to be honest, you, the whole subject kind of confuses you, and you just sort of stay away from it if you can. Or, C, I fear, and I hope this is the minority, but you have rejected what has been fed to you for whatever reason, reasons as wide as, as, wide as the world is big, right? Uh, you have rejected whatever has been fed to you, and you couldn't care less about the subject. You, you, know, you, you purposely or by default give no thought to the return of Jesus and to the end of this world. Two topics Jesus himself is very specific about. He mentions them, they're going to happen, they're real. But you are like, yeah, forget it, whatever, I just don't care. And so this is just a sampling <laughs> 
of what I mean by the baggage that comes along with the subject whenever you bring it up. You've got all these different ideas that are out there, and you've got people's varying responses to them. And my goodness, it's just, it's just a lot to address in a series of sermons in this setting. Um, we'll do our best, but I just, I'm acknowledging that up front. The second reason I have dreaded this section has to do with, being honest, some of my own baggage that I bring to this, because I'm not different than anyone else. I've got, I've got my own baggage here. You know, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and in pointing that out, I'm not, I'm not in any way indicating that there's something special about that that gives me new or different baggage, because a lot of the things that I was taught growing up, many of you will recognize as well, but, but having grown up in a Pentecostal church in the 80s, talk about the end times was almost ubiquitous. I mean, I cannot tell you how many end times charts I have seen in my life. It probably is, 666 of them right there. And they're always really interesting and have a lot of pictures, and sometimes there's dragons and cool stuff. And, and as a kid, you kind of like it, but, but after a while, it gets confusing. Uh, this is a picture. This is no joke. This is a picture of a painting that hung in our house as I was growing up. It's Jesus returning. I'm not being funny with it. I'm just letting you see it. Jesus returning. There's a plane crashing into a building, which was prophetic, I guess, for 9-11. I don't know what the artist was doing. I'm not trying to be funny with that either, but there it is. And there's people rising from the grave, and cars are crashing, and it's mayhem on earth. This hung either in our dining room or in our hallway, because my memory is from our kitchen looking that direction, and the doorway was right there, so I'm a little confused. But, man, I, I grew up looking at this. Uh, I remember when this book came out. Our church, there's 88 reasons why the rapture would occur in 1988. You're still laughing. It's not funny. <laughs> I'm not trying to make you laugh. I'm just showing you things from my past. I remember when this book came out. Our church held special services on the evenings of September 11th, 12th, and 13th, 1988 to pray and wait for Jesus' return, which now as an adult, I look back and go, do we think he could only come between the hours of six and nine? I don't know why we didn't like take the whole day off and everybody gather and pray and wait those three days, but we did. And I remember as a kid sitting there, I can almost see where I was sitting in this church building, and I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared as a kid, like, Jesus is coming. Oh, what's going to happen? You know, like you're, I'm worrying about it. And then September 14th comes, and he didn't return. And so what did we do? We came back for the sequel the next year. Same guy. He was off a year, he said. Wrote another book, and we all did it again. Now, I'd like to tell you that those were the only weird things that I experienced uh, during that time of my life, but that would be a lie. And by the time I finally became a believer in Jesus in 1996, my freshman year of college, um, it goes without saying that I was pretty much ready to question absolutely everything that I had ever been taught about the scriptures, about Jesus, and anything else. It actually, I wanted to see, does the Bible actually say what people have told me that it said my whole life? Needless to say, uh, as I began to dig into the scriptures, long before I even knew what the word theology meant, my theology began to change in so many respects and in so many points. But for some reason, just laying out where I'm at, this is a subject that I have never really come back to to study in depth, to come to some you know, hard and fast, detailed position so that I could draw my own chart or paint my own painting or write my own book kind of response. Um, it's not that I've ignored the subject completely. I haven't. It's just that as of yet in my study of the scriptures over what is almost now 20 years, this coming year, coming October, um, I have yet to feel compelled by the scriptures 
to come to some overly detailed position on a number of these things. There are three things that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt in relation to the topic of the end times. I will say them to you at the outset, and then we will probably come back to them numerous times through the course of our study over these next however many weeks. I don't really have a game plan at this point right now, but whatever length of time, we'll probably come back to them. Here they are. Number one, that Jesus Christ will come again, literally, physically, visibly, just as he said. Okay? I don't know the details. I don't know the outworking completely of what that looks like. If you do, you can reveal that to me later, but but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt he is coming again. Number two, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his return is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. This is even part of Jesus' point here in Mark 13, telling them to watch, to be prepared. You don't know when it's coming. It could happen at any moment. And number three, I know whenever that happens, the saved will spend eternity with him in heaven in his presence, and the lost will spend eternity separated from him in hell. I can affirm biblically with all of my heart those three things, but there are a lot of other things in this discussion that you have heard in the past that you're going to want to ask me that I'm telling you I just don't feel as certain about. And so for these two reasons, I have somewhat (laughs) been dreading getting into Mark 13. But as that Costco conversation reminded me, listening to these men talk, you know, this is an important subject for the church. It's not one that you can just ignore or walk away from because you don't like it or maybe you don't feel comfortable. It's important for us to understand and to understand correctly and carefully and get this one. Here's the one that's missing from most people's conversation. Biblically, it's important for all of us to understand, but even more so as I have studied this, I have felt convicted. I don't know what word here to use, but I have felt that it's even more important for me to help you understand it correctly and carefully. And I have been struck by something here in verse 14. We're jumping way ahead, and this is not the sermon. I'm still in introduction right now. It's this little parenthetical phrase, let the reader understand. Now, I want you to look at this very carefully for a moment, and without saying it out loud, what is the first thing you think about, or what do you first assume that Mark is talking about here when you see this particular statement? Well, no doubt, I assume, you, like me, first think that this is just a general command or exhortation to all of us as readers to to understand the meaning or significance of this little phrase that's preceding it here about the abomination of desolation standing where it ought, he, excuse me, let's be specific here, he ought not to be. I assumed that as well. I now think that's a wrong assumption. And to show you why I now think that's a wrong assumption, and this is getting somewhere, so just hold on for a minute. To show you why I think that's a wrong assumption, let me ask you a seemingly unrelated, weird question. Is there anyone in this room, and I want you to raise your hand, I want you to stand up if the answer is yes, because I will be shocked. Is there a single person in this room who has, in your home right now, hanging on your wall, waiting for you to return, a portrait of yourself that you had commissioned by a real artist? I'm talking the guy came in with canvas and paints, and you stood there, like, you know, flexing with a monocle and a pipe on a horse. Okay, you had a real artist come in, and he had you stand still for hours on end, and he painted every hair on your chinny-chin-chin. Will you please rise? Rise. 
I love the three of you who went, who looked around for me, okay? <laughs> People still do this, you know, right? There are artists who paint portraits for a living. They, they will come to your home or your office, wherever you go, and they'll paint your portrait. It still occurs today. People have it done. So my question to you is, why don't you have one? And there could be multiple reasons for that, but I would assume there are probably at least two reasons. Number one, you don't really have a need for such a thing. It wouldn't really benefit you to have that hanging in your house. And number two, you couldn't afford it even if you wanted to, because there's a reason only kings and presidents and guys named like Archibald Chestnut III have these kinds of paintings, right? Because they're the only ones who can afford them. So do you realize that the same has been true for books throughout the vast majority of world and church history? You know, let's put ourselves back in the first century for a moment and pretend that we are one of the first generations of Christians. Did you know that there is somewhere between a 70 and 95% chance that if you are a first century believer living in the Roman world, that you are illiterate? I mean, it's hard to nail this number down exactly because we can't go back and look and ask and do surveys, etc. But based on whatever research people do, <laughs> they estimate that only between 5 to 30%, and 30% is pretty generous, 5 to 30% of the population of the Roman world in the first century could read and write. You know, and Mark's audience is a part of that group. Literacy just wasn't needed by the vast majority of people in Mark's day. They're farmers and they're slaves and they're laborers. They work for survival. They work as soon as they can walk, and they work until they die. And there's no like, time of, of having fun. In the, there's no going to college and having time in school. That kind of, they just don't have the time, nor do they have the money. Learning to read or write in Mark's day would cost you a lot of money because it was considered to be really advanced education. Now, we hear that, and we can't really fathom that kind of thinking, but, but this is their world, and therefore, literacy was only pursued by the wealthy, by the elite, and occasionally by the military class that was rising up in the ranks. The higher up you went, the more you needed that. So sometimes you would find examples of military men learning uh, to read and write to advance their careers. You, you see, uh, if we're one of the small numbers of people who could read and write in the early church, do you realize how weird you would be? <laughs> You'd be really, really unusual. And, and, and even if you could read, do you have any idea how expensive it would be to own a book? Again, you and I just take things for granted. I mean, we probably, in this room right now, easy, 200 Bibles. Easy. 200 Bibles sitting around. But that's only because we take the printed word for, for, for granted. That's because we live after 1440, after Gutenberg and the printing press. Everyone who lived before 1440, for them to have owned a book, it would have been quite a feat. I mean, whew. each book had to be hand-copied by some professional guy who had given that time to get that professional advanced educational training to read and write. And he's going to sit there and he's going to hand copy each book for you. I mean, this is, a, this is a huge thing. These books are not cheap. And as a result, books of any sort, Bibles or otherwise, were very expensive and were not normally owned by a common man. Do you see now why I asked you the question about the painting? It would be very similar. You wouldn't really have a need for it because you couldn't read it anyway, so it wouldn't benefit you. And even if you could read and write, the odds that you can afford to own such a thing is almost unimaginable. 
back now to verse 14. This is Mark's world. So my question is, to whom is he saying this? Let the reader understand. Well, if I may personalize this for us in order to make the answer clear, I think he's saying it to me. You see, the early church was structured or structured its gatherings very uh, around the synagogue model. In the synagogue, when the time of teaching came, an individual who could read or write would stand up with the scriptures and would read the scriptures to the congregation. Probably the only time throughout the week they'd even hear the scriptures read, unless they came back to the synagogue throughout the week to hear more. But he would read to them, and then there would be a time of teaching or exhortation based on that section. That was his job, to to read and to teach to them. In fact, when you read the New Testament and you see these references to the public reading of Scripture, that's why. That's this guy's job, to read to the people. And so the reader that Mark is prodding here, I don't think it's just any reader. I think it's the reader, if I can change our text just a little to help you see the significance. It's a specific person. It's the teacher it's me. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility as readers, as students, to study and understand this for yourselves, but I have been very convicted because it does mean that the specific responsibility for helping you in this process falls on me, and I take that very seriously. So, with that crazy, long introduction out of the way, and I apologize for that, Let's just spend a few moments noticing a couple of features as we begin our time here in Mark 13, and then we'll try to get a big picture overview of where we're heading here. And the first thing that is important to note here in Mark 13 is the general context of where, uh, of which this passage is a part. Mark begins by saying, as he, Jesus, came out of the temple. And I would pause here just to make sure that you understand that this chapter is the end of a multi-day uh, period where Jesus has been in the temple, interacting with various people, teaching, doing stuff, etc. This time began back in chapter 11, verse 12, on Monday morning of the Passion Week. If you're trying to keep the days of the week together, Monday morning of the Passion Week, chapter 11, verse 12. It started with him uh, uh, bringing the temple worship to a halt. Remember that? When he overturns the tables, he stops people from carrying things through. He pronounces judgment there on the temple and its system. It continued with him pronouncing judgment on the leaders of the temple and the leaders of that system. It continued with a series of challenges and conundrums brought to Jesus to try to trap him in his words. All of these scenes that we've been looking at since chapter 11, verse 12, have occurred there within the temple compound, there within that context. And now he's coming out of the temple, I would assume at or near the gate there on the eastern side. And on his way out, the disciples make a comment to him that I find very interesting. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And because we can't see it, it's hard for us to imagine but if we're going to be fair, by all ancient accounts, it really truly was a marvelous building. This is a crude illustration of what it looked like based on what we can tell archaeologically. And I picked this one specifically because a lot of the pictures seem to be wrong. This one is trying to be based somewhat off of what's there on the, on the, um, at the site itself, but also somewhat on the descriptions of the temple that you read, particularly those of a guy named Josephus. And if you're not familiar with Josephus, you're going to hear his name a lot in the weeks to come here because he was a Jewish historian who lived during the first century who wrote extensively about the events that occurred during that time. Now, I got to tell you something about him. He works for the Romans. So, <laughs> 
when you read him, you're reading propaganda. You understand that at the outset as you come and you open up his writing. He's going to always speak favorably of the Romans, of what the Romans did, even as they're killing nearly a million Jews or probably over a million Jews in the war. He still writes well about them. I mean, they're still nice people, even though they slaughtered our, our people by the million. You know, like, he, he's, he's, he's a propaganda guy, but he's also giving us some of the best history that we have of that time. And I want to read to you his description of the temple. As a guy who saw the same building that Jesus saw that the disciples are pointing to right now, he writes, Now the outward face of the temple and its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt covered with gold, if you don't know what that means, that were not gilt, they were exceeding white. On its top, it had spikes with sharp points to prevent any pollution of it by birds sitting upon it. On its stones, of its stones, some of them were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. Now, we don't use cubits. Cubit is about 18 inches. So he's describing stones here that are about 70 feet long, eight feet high, and nine feet wide a big rock. <laughs> I mean, it's a big stone to have to pull into place to build this temple. It, it must have been truly amazing. And this is what the disciples are pointing out to Jesus. They're not exaggerating. They're not just filled with nationalistic pride and making something out to be better than it was. It apparently was an amazing structure. But I find this very interesting because I can't figure out why they're saying it to Jesus. I mean, they were there with him when he pronounced judgment on this place. They were there with him. They heard it. They heard his, his pronouncement of judgment on not just the temple, but its system and its leaders, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. So is this an attempt by the disciples perhaps to, to maybe get Jesus to lighten up a bit, you know? Like, hey, this, I know you're angry, but it's a really nice you know, house. Let's maybe like back off just a tad. Is that the, the focus I don't know. Or is it just another instance where we see them not really getting it? Because this has happened before where Jesus has said very explicitly, I'm going to do this. And they're like, what are you going to do? You know, they don't understand at all what Jesus is trying to do. So which one is it? I don't know. Either way, Jesus makes the point of everything he said about the temple explicitly clear. Do you see these great buildings? He's probably pointing at them as he says it. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Is that clear? That's how I would have said it. If I were him, I'm like, what's wrong with you guys? You know, is that clear? Don't you get it? You know, this is by far, by far, in this section we've been in looking at Jesus interacting with the temple, this is by far the most explicit statement yet as to God's intentions for this place that Jesus has been in for the past few days. I mean, there's no... Beating around the bush now, like, what you see, not one stone will be on another at this point. This is where he's been going with all of this. The, God's judgment is coming, and this temple will be literally destroyed. It's not like a spiritual thing, like, well, they're just going to get rid of the people who are there. We're going to redo it and fix it. No, no, no. It is literally going to be destroyed. If you think about it, this statement is sort of the culmination 
of everything since the fig tree. The beginning of chapter 11, verse 12 there. When Jesus sees the fig tree, remember the, I told you that the fig tree is an is a acted out parable. As he sees it, it's fruitless, and he pronounces judgment on it, and it withers away to its roots. It's completely and totally gone. <laughs> what happened to the fig tree is going to happen to the temple. It's going to be completely and totally gone. And this, if you will listen carefully, is the first point that is really hard for us to understand properly. Because we read that, and it doesn't really move us or strike us in any way. And we're sort of like, well, okay, it's going to be destroyed. What's next, you know? <laughs> Just a building. Let's move on. What's coming next in the story? We, we're not impacted at all by that, by this. And, and, and that feeling there is part of the reason why we don't really understand the Scriptures like we should. Because if we took the time to put ourselves back in their shoes, to hear with their ears, to see with their eyes, it would revolutionize the way we read Scripture. This statement about the literal destruction of the temple must have gone off like a bomb in the, the disciples' hearts and minds. I mean, it must have just completely rocked their world. It's interesting to me that as you move on now into verse 3, you see that none of the disciples immediately responded to that statement. They're, they're walking out of the temple. He's like, it's all going to be gone. And then nothing happens until we get to a very different scene here in verse 3. They're walking out, uh, and now they're on the Mount of Olives. I showed you this slide a few weeks ago just to help you get a sense of the city because it's kind of important for some of the details that are going on. But you see the temple there in the middle, and on the east side of the city is the Mount of Olives. And each day, Jesus has been coming and going, probably back out to Bethany, where he's been staying at uh, Mary Martha Lazarus's house in Bethany. And so they've been taking this road sort of around the temple, because why go over when you can go around? It's easier to go around. It's the road. But, but today, instead of, oh, and there's the Mount of Olives, in case you couldn't see it, and here's what he sees. Today, instead of going around the mountain, he goes up it. First time we've seen this. He goes up the mountain, and he sits on it, overlooking the temple. And you can see here in the back of the picture the Dome of the Rock, which is roughly the same location where the temple was. So this gives you an idea of what Jesus and his disciples are looking at as they're looking that direction. And what all of this tells me is that a certain amount of time passes between the moment when he says to them, the temple's going to be destroyed, and the moment when they sit down on the mountain to talk. And so Mark tells us that, you know, They've had time to process this now. Mark tells us that now that they've arrived on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they ask him privately this question. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What do they want to know? They want to know times and signs. Sound familiar? <laughs> they want to know times and signs, but I would clarify this a little by asking the times and signs of what? Well, the way Mark records the question, the best answer I could give you here is just all these things. Whatever these things are, okay, that's what they want to know the times and signs of. And at this point, I think it's helpful for us to leave Mark for just a moment and go over to Mark, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, Matthew is recording the same scene, the same question, the same responses of Jesus. The difference is Matthew gives more detail. Mark does it all in one chapter. Matthew does it in two. So just Matthew, it's not two different answers to what's going on or two different accounts. I mean, it is, but 
it's two recordings of the same event. Does that make sense? If I, you and I experience the same thing and someone asks us what happened, we would each tell the same story, but in different ways. Matthew and Mark are telling the same story, but in different ways. And in Matthew's recording of the question, he gives us a little more detail as to specifically what they asked. The question in Matthew is, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, if you're a analytical person, your first thing should be like, whoa, 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 whoa. He talked about the temple. <laughs> Why are you asking about the end of the world? Right? I mean, he says the temple's going to be destroyed. Why are you asking about the, the end of the world? Where in the world did that come from? Because the only thing Jesus said is that this building is going to be destroyed. So what's going on here? Well, what you can see here is that when the disciples heard that the temple would be destroyed, in their minds, immediately, they equate that to end of the world, okay? Destruction of the temple equals the end of the world. This is their worldview. This is how they have been trained to think about the temple, about how God is doing things in this world. They've been raised to believe that the temple was the holiest, most important place on earth, the place where God dwells with man, specifically with the nation of Israel, that this building and what goes on here is a part and parcel of God's plans for his kingdom and for his dealings with man, so that if it's going to be destroyed, certainly everything else will be as well. They, they can't think of it apart as two different things. In their minds, it's one thing. And so therefore, Jesus, now please tell us, what are the times and the signs when all these things will be? And I assume, I feel like I've been assuming a lot in this sermon, I assume you see at least some of the problems there, right? Jesus does. And so as we work through the verses, the teaching that follows, because now from verse 4 on, excuse me, verse 5 on, everything that's said by Jesus is an answer to this question. This is, this is huge. Understand the question properly, because then you'll understand the answer better. Everything from this is, is Jesus <laughs> not as much instructing and answering their question as he is correcting their wrong assumption. Did you catch that? Well, we're going to see, starting in verse 5, all the way through 37, or whatever the last verse is there, is Jesus correcting their wrong assumptions. And in the, in the process, along the way, he does instruct them. He, he, he tries to help them understand, but, but one of the major points of the section is about Jesus dividing out or separating the destruction of the temple from the end of the world. That's their assumption and asking, but they're not the same thing. And that distinction is kind of, kind of important for us, too, as we work through the text. Jesus is going to draw lines, and he's going to separate ideas, and we need to honor that as we work through the text ourselves. One of the other main points, then, I think, out of that, it's kind of more of an outworking of the first one, is that he's instructing his disciples on how to understand and, and really relate to or respond to, even practically, the outworking of that separation. Hey, the destruction of the temple is one thing. The end of the world's another. You're going to have some different things to do in each place. For, for example, I mean, we read it. If you can look ahead. Um, he exhorts them at one point to flee. Flee, right? If you're, you're in Judea, you see this happening. Flee. Pray that it not be in winter. I hope you're not pregnant. Just get out of town. 
Um, you recognize that if we're talking about the end of the world, that doesn't really make any sense because where are you going to flee to? I mean, it's just one simple, easy example to pull out. I'm just showing you that this is an example of what's going to be going on in the text. You're going to see some things that are telling you to do uh, things in relation to this idea and other things that are telling you to do something in relation to that idea. If we muddy those lines, then we're going to be confused as to how to respond appropriately to each part. And in all of this, perhaps the mainest point, to use a use some bad grammar purposely, is to assure them that the kingdom of God, excuse me, that the kingdom that God is bringing <laughs> is not based on this temple, that it will come to bear, it is definite, it is certain, and it is not contingent on what happens on this mountain. God's not constrained by a building. The system that he had is going to be done away with. The building will be destroyed. God's kingdom is going to last forever. From a Jewish perspective, this is an, uh, an earth-shattering idea. So this gives you at least some idea of where we're going. I'm trying just to kind of broad a, or, uh, paint a broad stroke here just so you can understand. Just sort of an introduction to this section. But as we begin to study, I want to ask you to do six things. And some of you take notes. I love you guys to take notes because you encourage me when you do it. Now everybody's like, oh, I'll take notes for you. Uh, I want to give you, ask you to do six things kind of in preparation for this, okay? Six actions, or at least six points of understanding or th ways of thinking about something um, that I think will help us tremendously as we study this. Number one, I'd like to you to ask you to recognize what, what you don't know. Just recognize what you don't know. It's okay to not know the answer to every question, even with the scriptures. God doesn't share his glory with another. And sometimes he doesn't give us all the answers we would like to have. He gives us all the answers we need, but not necessarily all the ones we would like to have. And so it's okay not to be able to answer every single question we have. We want the text to speak for itself, and we want to put our faith in God, not in our ability to answer everything in the detail we want it. Got it? So just recognize that what you don't know and be okay with that. Number two, I'm going to ask you to not assume things of the text. Not assume things of the text. For example, that little section about let the reader understand. We just assume things. When we read, we don't really think about it. But you put yourself back in their shoes, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait. <laughs> now I understand. He's, not everybody could read. There was a person who was the reader, the teacher for them. That makes more sense. So let's just not assume stuff. Let's question everything and try to understand. And I feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been going through this a lot lately as we've been studying Mark. I keep running across stuff where I'm like, man, I never understood that. How did I miss that all these years? Like, but... I, Hey, you know what? We don't know everything, so we're learning. Let's just not assume stuff. Let's ask good questions. Number three, let's do the best we can to lay aside our presuppositions. I'm referring to that baggage that I talked about at the beginning. You all have it. One way or the other, I don't know what. I don't know specifically what you've got going on inside your mind in relation to this topic, but just do your best to lay it all aside to come back and just let the scriptures speak for themselves. Number four, I want to encourage you to read this section with eyes towards the Old Testament. Okay, read this section with eyes towards the Old Testament. See, I've come to believe that a big part of our problem, maybe even the biggest part of our problem in Mark 13, is that we just don't know the Old Testament. There is a ton. I mean, this is like, I'm, I'm, I'm debating, I'm, I'm like, one of the points I'm going to have to deal with as we go through this is how much of that do I show you? 
There's a ton of Old Testament imagery. There's a ton of Old Testament quotations here. Some of that is critical to our understanding. Maybe some of it isn't, but we've got to deal with that. And even here in verses 1 through 3 as an example, and I purposely held off showing this to you until now, did anyone pick up on the Old Testament imagery in, in Mark 13, 1 through 3? Of course not, because none of you know Ezekiel, right? When you think Ezekiel, you think of like the main love interest in a Beverly Lewis novel. You don't think of like the Old Testament Ezekiel. But you got to know Ezekiel 10 and 11 to understand the significance of what's happening in verses 1 through 3, because in Ezekiel 10 and 11, you see that the same thing has happened before. That as God is pronouncing judgment and woe on Jerusalem and Israel for their wickedness, the glory of God lifts up from the temple, it goes to the gate, it stops there for a moment, and then it departs to the Mount of Olives where it stands and looks over the city. <laughs> Here, the king of the temple departs from the temple. There's a scene where he stops and has an interaction with his disciples, and then he departs to the Mount of Olives, not where he normally went, up the mountain and stops and looks over the city and talks about the judgment that's to come. In Ezekiel, that act of God departing from the city, standing against it on the mountain, is, is, it's a sign to them of terrible judgment that's about to come. And what's happening here is the same thing again. Jesus departing, pronouncing this judgment on it, it's a sign of a terrible judgment of God that's about to come. We don't see that because we don't understand the Old Testament. When you understand the Old Testament, then some of these things begin to pop out to, sh to show themselves to you. You're like, oh, this is a big thing. This is a big deal, what's going on here. So we need to read with eyes towards the Old Testament. Number five, we need to read it with the eyes of the disciples and Mark's first audience. To constantly come back and do the best we can to put ourselves in their shoes. The shoes of the disciples who are going through it in the story. The shoes of Mark, who's writing. The shoes of his audience, who's hearing or reading. You know, we're going to have to understand some historical things that occurred along the way. I'm going to try not to bog us down with, with history and details, but some of it's important. We, we don't want to just know what they knew. We really want to feel what they felt. It will help us. It really will help us as we work through this. And then number six, finally, most importantly... We want to emphasize the person and work of Jesus and our need for the Spirit's help in, in, in understanding. You know, in my humble or maybe not so humble opinion, there is no, almost no other topic that you can talk about, biblical topic that is, that draws men's hearts to their own wisdom and ability to understand things and away from Jesus than the topic of the end times. Now that seems weird, right? It seems like when you're talking about the return of Jesus, you should think a lot about Jesus. But for some reason, there's something about the subject, and it's not the subject's fault, it's man's fault, but there's something about the subject that effectively seduces our hearts and minds into wanting to know the, the secrets of the future. You know, we become like the disciples, wanting to know signs and times, but somehow not really wanting to know the God whose signs and times they are. Do you see what I'm talking about? It's, it's a real danger, I think, for us. And so as we work through this, I'm committing myself to, to try to draw our hearts back to Jesus most of all each week as we go into this, to, to his death for us, to the fact that it's his kingdom that's coming, to, to the reason why our desire should be for him and not, not just for his coming. And I get that's a weird distinction to make. I'm just trying to work this out even in my own mind, just to desire him above everything else. And in all of that, folks, we're going to have to rely on the Spirit. I mean, to lead our hearts back to a complete love for and dependence on God and not to be puffed up with some supposed knowledge that we acquire along the way. 
folks, for my own conscience's sake, let me be very clear with you uh, here at the end. I am not claiming to be the best guide for you through this passage, not by a long shot, okay? I don't, I don't have like a long history of studying it. I don't know everything well, um, nor am I claiming to be the best example on those six points. But I am taking Mark's exhortation to the reader there in verse 14 very seriously, and I will do my best to help us walk through this. But I'm not going to answer every one of your questions, okay? Just understand that. And I'm not going to be able to explain everything perfectly. And even for the questions I do answer and for the things I do explain, it doesn't remove the responsibility from all of you as readers and students to be questioning things yourself and to try to study things for yourself to see whether or not what I'm saying to you is correct. And so I'd like to close this morning by committing us and our study of this passage to the Lord, that we be faithful to his word and dependent on him in everything that we do. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, this is just a lot. It's just... It shouldn't be you've written this to to communicate truth to us, but because of the context in which we live today and all the stuff, the wrong stuff, the crazy stuff that's been thrown out there regarding your return and and the future and all this stuff, I feel like we are in muddy waters trying to get clarity. And the reality is is that we can't do that on our own. We We can't just make things make sense, perhaps, that we've not really even given serious thought to and just hope that we can work it out quickly. These are deep subjects. And Father, I pray that as we work through this passage over the next two, three, four weeks, whatever it is that we're in this, that you will give us your spirit to help us understand correctly. We want to be good students who are first and foremost faithful to you, faithful to your word, to let your word speak for itself, to not try to impose our thoughts on it, but to let it impose its its truth on us. And so please help us in that process to do this faithfully, to do this humbly. I pray that you will help me understand so I can lead this well, but that you also help all the hearers understand so that they can check and see for themselves that in the end, we will give the glory back to you. This is what this is about. It's about your ultimate victory, your kingdom finally coming, and all of your plans for this world being made right again. We mess things up with our sin. Jesus, you have made a way through your blood, and we want the glory to go back to you. And so we ask that most of all. Help us to see you through this time, through this process. May all of this exalt your name in our hearts, and make us love you completely, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.